Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage, part of a series throughout June to mark the 95th anniversary of RTHK. Last week, as you may have heard, I headed up to the top of Mount Gough to visit an FM transmission station and also heard about how to edit reel-to-reel tape, which actually, if kept well, still provides fantastic sound. And it's to those reel-to-reel tapes I turn for this weekend's programme, which takes a look at outside broadcasts in a programme I'll call On The Road, although I also include some studio work. So throughout, you'll be hearing segments from recordings dating back to the 1950s, when Governor Sir Alexander Grantham sailed out of Hong Kong at the end of his governorship in 1957. And I'm on the DCNI launch number three. We are just immediately astern of the Lady Maureen now, about 100 yards astern. There's also the Macau Grand Prix. Six, five, four, three, two, one, and they're off! And Typhoon Wanda. At Aberdeen, the damage has been caused largely to the boats, as might well be expected. The total number damaged is not yet known. So, when I went down to the library, the exit of Sir Alexander Grantham was in fact the oldest bit of reel-to-reel I chose to record off. Grantham was a popular governor and gets a good send-off here in 1957. This is Radio Hong Kong. Today, the 31st of December, His Excellency the Governor and Lady Grantham are leaving Hong Kong. In a few moments, they're due to arrive at Queen's Pier, where they'll say goodbye to their many friends who are assembled there. We're taking you over now to Queen's Pier for a description of the scene, so over first to Tim Brinton. Good morning to you from Queen's Pier. I'm standing on our broadcasting van on the side facing the reclamation, the part which is normally used as a car park. But today, drawn up in two lines, is a multiple guard of honour, composed of the Royal Navy, the 1st Battalion, the Green Howards for the Army, and the Royal Air Force. Behind them the bands of the Royal Marines and the regimental band of the Green Howards, waiting to do honour to His Excellency Sir Alexander Grantham and Lady Grantham as they depart on their retirement. Behind me, on the other side of the pier, about 400 yards out, is the ship that Sir Alexander and Lady Grantham will be leaving on. So, first of all, Let's go down and hear from John Wallace at Queen's Pier. Over now to John Wallace. And here I'm standing about eight paces from the top of the steps leading down to the Lady Maureen, which is lying alongside. I can reach out over the railing of Queen's Pier if I wished and touch the superstructure of the Lady Maureen, which is bobbing gently here at the foot of these steps, bunting, whipping in frenzied dance as this cold wind blows across the harbour. As the Lady Maureen leaves here and goes out, it'll be observed at close quarters by Ted Thomas, who is right at the far end of the Star Ferry Pier. And so, for what he can see from his point, over now to Ted Thomas. Greetings from the roof of the new Star Ferry Pier. I am sitting up on the top of the eastern arm of the twin arms of this building, and right in front of me, across the harbour, the Kowloon docks, and between these docks and here lies the Bougainville. Uh, to my right, the Royal Naval Dockyard with HMS Newcastle, the cruiser, alongside flying her colourful ensign, jack and admiral's flag at the masthead. And nearer still, still within the precincts of the dockyard, the fleet auxiliary 
Gold Ranger. The wind here is really getting up all the time while we're talking to you. Sir Alexander moves on now to the Green Hearts Guard. Guard Commander goes down with him. For a description of a voyage from Queen's Pier out to the Bougainville, over to the Star Ferry to Ted Thomas. Um, through binoculars here, I can see the handkerchiefs waving and the ropes have dropped into the water now. Ropes which secured the launch Lady Maureen to Queen's Pier symbolically casting off all ties of a long and successful association with Hong Kong. The Hong Kong which has grown and flourished under His Excellency's leadership and guidance. Over now to Donald Brooks. And I'm on the DCNI launch number three. We are just immediately astern of the Lady Maureen now, about 100 yards astern. She's not more to the pontoon yet. The ropes are just being thrown across. Uh, next to us are the boats of the escort lining up, police launch number 11, police launch number 3. They appear to be having a little trouble in getting the Lady Maureen right alongside the pontoon because the sea is indeed very choppy here. The Lady Maureen will form part of the escort as the Bougainville moves slowly down the harbour. The escort, which is composed of police launches, marine launches, launches of the Department of Commerce and Industry, bringing up the rear, there's a police launch with firecrackers, Further on down the harbour is the fire float, Sir Alexander Grantham. And now we're nearly at Lymoon Pass now. The escort has broken off. The Hong Kong Facilio escort has broken off, and even they are firing crackers. They've got crackers from the mast, I think, of each of the ships, certainly the leading ships. They're now coming down beside us very closely, in perfect formation. They broke off their V, did a turn right round in a very tight circle, and are now in perfect formation. Yes, there's a crackers on the mast of the uh, ship astern. And now the first one, P3513, is passing us. The crew waving, standing on the deck. P3510 is just shooting past us. They also have crackers on their mast. And now it only remains for us to say a very last sad farewell to a man who has not only been Hong Kong's governor for the past ten years, but undoubtedly is the best friend that Hong Kong has ever had. And to him and Lady Grantham, we wish bon voyage and the very happiest of retirement. I return you now to the studio. The commentators, during His Excellency the Governor's departure, were John Wallace and Tim Brenton at Queen's Pier, Ted Thomas on the roof of the New Star Ferry, and Donald Brooks in the launch. The send-off of Alexander Grantham there. There are a number of these harbour send-offs that I found in the library. Another was a visit by Britain's Prince Philip in 1959, part of a wider global tour he was on. And it was interesting to hear the deference accorded him by the commentators as they travelled alongside him in a flotilla of boats as they accompanied Prince Philip aboard the Royal Yacht Britannia out of Victoria Harbour. I also want to point out that in recordings from this era, it's often the voice of the late Ted Thomas who died earlier this year and who was part of RTHK from the late 1950s until the 1970s. This is a speech on housing back in 1967, which declares the one millionth settler in Hong Kong. So that's interesting in terms of history, of how that was calculated. Presumably refugees who'd come in, but then been officially registered, perhaps. The one millionth person is being resettled. 
This is really a fantastic achievement if you stop to think. One million people are now living in resettlement housing, which has only been built since 1954 by the Public Works Department of Government under the direction of the Resettlement Department and the Urban Council, which also makes the important policy decisions for the running of these vast estates. And it must be remembered that this is only part of the housing which government is financing with public money. There are thousands of persons housed in the Housing Authority estates and thousands more in government low-cost housing. Housing is not one of those items which we can criticise government for being backward about. And I think we must be grateful to the Urban Council for this. Indeed, we recognise the tremendous achievement today as we attend this ceremony. There are many countries all over the world which envy this achievement. But it is imperative to realise that the millionth person resettled only represents a milestone in the overall housing programme. I doubt if we can regard it as even a halfway milestone. And now for something a bit different, which is the start of a programme about the dire need for blood donations in Hong Kong. So, as I listened to this 45-minute feature, there were short interviews with medical personnel and scientists. But the start, as you'll hear, is sheer radio drama. And for me, showed a few things. First of all, sorry, it's a little bit irritating in its style, in my view, but also shows how Radio 3 here is being used for education. But also that radio was done in a much slower style, while people are happy listening to longer podcasts these days, this is somewhat theatrical. Have a listen. We present People Are Dying, a commentary by the people concerned on the very serious shortage of blood for use in Hong Kong hospitals and the influence of this shortage on medical work in the colony. This is the cry of a child whose days might be numbered. Your child or mine. The cry of a child with all of life before him. Weeks or months or years depending on you and on me any man's child and so your child and mine he would seem no different from other children yet chance has made him so the blood in his veins dies faster than he can build it. And next week, next month, next year, he will die without your blood and mine. Blood thrust by the heart through the veins and arteries of the body blood, feeding, cleaning, healing, 
and building. Blood, without which the normal commerce of the body stops. Blood, whose place can only be taken by blood. Now for a bit of sport. This is a bunch of radio commentators telling us what's going on at the Macau Grand Prix in 1965. I like the old car races. Possibly far fewer safety measures in the car and for the driver, of course, which was the downside. But I liked all the different styles of car you could get at that time. Personally, I find it more interesting looking back at those older races. See what types of car you can pick out from the commentary and the sounds of the engines. The time is, of course, a quarter to nine, and this is Ted Thomas reporting from the gear circuit in Macau, where we're awaiting the beginning of the production car race B. The cars are not yet on the grid, but we already have the lineup except uh, for the nomination of one particular driver. I'll run through them very quickly. Car number 83 is K.H. Chang's Lotus Cortina. Car number 84 is Henry Lee, and also in a Lotus Cortina. And car number 85 is also a Lotus Cortina. Car number 86 is Frank Wong's Ford Corsair GT. And 87, um, John Kirk will be driving the Ford Cortina GT. We've just heard from the pits. There's a rumor that John might not be driving uh, in this particular race. And so um, I'll call down to Alan Armstrong Wright, our pit correspondent, in just a moment or two, and find out whether that is, in fact, the truth. Car number 88 is another Ford Cortina GT, and the driver has not yet been nominated, but in just a moment or two, the cars will be coming out onto the grid, and we can look down through our binoculars here and see who gets into the car. 89 is uh, Peter Chow driving a BMW 1800. Car number 90 is O Su Chung in a Volvo. David Ma is driving car number 92, a Jaguar 3.8 saloon, and George Baker is driving his old horse, the Jaguar 3.4, car number 93, which he has had now on the gear circuit for as many years as I can remember almost. Today in Macau, it's bright, sunny, and cool. The very strong winds which have marred the weather conditions here for the last three days during practice and yesterday's events, the production car race and the ACP trophy car uh, sports car race have now died down and John Wallace has just reported to me from Reservoir Bend that the weather's a lot better and not quite so breezy. Uh, Clive Simpson gave me the same report a few minutes before that. The gear circuit itself is um, or has been described as being one of the finest classic GT courses in the world. The reason is that it's got just about everything. It's got very, very fast, shallow bends that the cars you can go into at top speed, and top speed here often reaches 130 or 140 miles an hour. It's got straights, uh, some of which are half a mile in length. It's got solitude S's, long, sinuous curves, which can be taken very, very fast indeed also. And then it's got a very hard right-hand hairpin over at Melco on the far side of the course. We're sitting opposite the grandstand, and underneath the grandstand are the maintenance pits where our pit correspondent, Alan Armstrong Wright, will be operating and talking to you as cars come into the pits for attention of any sort, and, of course, as they come into the pits um, at the end of each race. There are two races on the card today. There's the production car race B and the Macau Grand Prix proper, the race which gives its name to this weekend of motorsport, which takes place every November and has taken place every November for the last 
12 years, this being the 12th Macau Grand Prix. The cars have started now, and you can probably hear the engines as they rev up on the starting line. In the front row of the grid, um, I'm sorry, I still don't have the name of the driver in 88. Alan is finding out. I think Alan has it, actually. I'll quickly go over to the pits and Alan Armstrong right. Uh, Paul Chan is, is driving car number 88. It is actually Paul Chan, the entrant. They're all ready to start now. The official timekeeper has his hand in the air, indicating... One minute to go, and Bob Harper, who always starts his own team on the opposite side of the, um, of the starting grid, uh, is going to count off the last 10 seconds. Um, his own drivers, of course, Frank Wong, John Kirk, uh, Steve Holland, watching him very closely indeed, and also, with half an eye, on the light, I imagine. The light which goes from red to green and signifies the start. Bob Harper, team manager, of Team Harper is now counting off the seconds. Six, five, four, three, two, one, and they're off! And the first of the greatest team into the band. Kirk got left behind. Immediately after Holland came Henry Lee and the Lotus Cortina. So that was the order as they went out here. It was Steve Holland, first of all, in the Lotus Cortina. Uh, John Kirk was um, left behind at the start. I'm not sure what the reason for that was. I hope it's nothing to do with his arm. And um, another Lotus Cortina out past him. And in that order, they went out from my site under the trees in the Yacht Club bend here, around to the right and into the Yacht Club straight, where in just a second or two, Warren Rook will see them. They're just coming now under the pedestrian bridge and it's Steve Holland throwing a lot of dust and smoke there, followed by the big George Baker Jaguar, followed again by uh, Henry Lee, the other Jaguar. Then 87 is John Kirk. He did get away, I think. And last up the hill is uh, number 86, of course, Air GT, being driven today by Frank Wong. I'm pretty sure that that was John Kirk, number 87. He, uh, he did get away and go up the hill. And... Uh, there was no incident at all on this corner. Steve Holland, of course, has set up uh, quite a big lead here already. Steve's driving the Lotus Cortina, which is a twin sister to the one he drove uh, with Albert Poon at Sandown Park last week in Australia, placing second. Uh, John Kirk's GT Cortina, however, is a comparatively standard car. I think within just a few seconds, they should be approaching Clive Simpson at Transmitter Turn, so over to Clive Simpson. Yes, I can see the first car coming down now, coming down Faraway Hill. And it is car number 85, which is the White Lotus Cortina of Steve Holland. And the next car round is the, the White Jaguar of George Baker. And then, I think, after that, the Lotus Cortina of Henry Lee. Here come the four, the group of the four cars. George Baker, the two Lotus Cortinas, and the BMW. Absolutely neck and neck here. Over now to John Wallace at Reservoir Day. As Steve goes by me and I have the watch on him and I uh, must confess that I was wrong in my prognostication that John Kirk, once having got past David Maher, would set off like a bat out of the proverbial. He doesn't seem to be making much more of an increase in his lead over David and also, by the same token, is not catching up with the group of four that are so far behind Steve Holland. That group of four, of course, being good old George and his good old Jag. That's George Baker and the Jag 3.4, uh, which is just about as old as George, I think, or perhaps not. And then come the two Lotus Cortinas, 83 and 84, of K.H. Chang and Henry Lee. And 
than the BMW 1800 Tourist International of Peter Chow. Here they come, in that order now. And George Baker passed me first. Oh, and that was very close indeed. As, as K.H. Chang tried to take Henry Lee's Cortina on the inside, he nearly bumped him in the back. And the lead is exactly 50 seconds, Steve Holland over George Baker. And here is John Kirk, fastest now, and he's gaining a little ground and he's gritting his teeth. So as that little race develops, four of them together, John Kirk, I think, catching up with them, and none of them getting anywhere near Steve Holland. Let's go to Ted Thomas at the grandstand. And there's only just time to tell you that uh, George Baker goes past now. Henry Lee, Chang, Pete Chow in the BMW in that order. One, two, three, four. Very quickly. Baker in the Jaguar, 3.4. Henry Lee in the Lotus Cortina. K.H. Chang in the Lotus Cortina. And in fifth position, Peter Chow. And that's all we have time for you with the cars on the fifth lap out of this 30-lap race here at the gear circuit in Macau. We're going to return you to the studios of Radio Hong Kong. And now, on to the tale of the chopstick tree. It is at this time of the year, in the early spring, that one of the most interesting of all local feasts is celebrated, the ritual symbolic replanting of the now-extinct chopstick tree. You having a laugh? Yes, that was part of a feature for April Fool's Day in 1965. In the 1950s, and throughout the 1960s, Hong Kong had acute water shortages which resulted in water rationing, often provided for four hours every four days. People would fill up their baths if they had them, and news photos from that time show people queuing in the streets and filling up buckets from standpipes. Life could be quite tough. This feature, by then Radio Hong Kong, was produced at the same time as the construction of the Shekpik Reservoir on Lantau. Save water. The water you save now may save you later. Every drop counts. Our water situation is desperate. Water is precious. 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 But what's the government doing about it? They should have seen this years ago. Radio Hong Kong presents Half As Much Again, the story of the Shekpik water scheme. That's a bulldozer. A giant piece of earth-moving machinery capable of moving earth in 50-ton bites. And the bulldozer wasn't the only thing to come to Lantau with the dam builders. Graders, cranes, trucks, buses, scrapers, and all the apparatus of 20th century engineering was brought to bear in this gigantic operation. The operation that leveled two ancient villages, sealed off a valley, and built a 5,000 million gallon reservoir. 
Chekpik is one of the largest and costliest reservoirs ever to be built in Southeast Asia. These days, it's very rare that anyone dies in a typhoon. In fact, we've become a little complacent at times about the possible dangers. Complaining, perhaps, if the observatory's forecast is a bit more safe than sorry, and we lose out on a day at the stock market. But typhoons could be deadly, and Typhoon Wanda in 1962 was one of those. Four thousand are homeless in the new territories, sixteen thousand in Kowloon, and six thousand on the island. Forty-seven people are dead. I've just left Chakiwan Police Station, where there's a crowd of about two or three hundred homeless fishermen, all queuing up to report the loss of their homes and their livelihood. The corporal in charge there tells me that as yet he can't ascertain the final figures, but he has no doubt that at least a hundred junks and sampans have been lost in Chakiwan Typhoon Anchorage. And at the moment, I'm in the Typhoon Anchorage, and it's a scene of utter desolation. Everyone is pathetically clambering in, in and out of the wreckage. There are sampans thrown crazily up uh, up onto the uh, shipyard hards. There are people fishing in the water for little somethings to retrieve and to make their homes once again. All around me, there's banging, there's activity. Everybody is starting life again. But there's no doubt that in Shaokiwan, they've taken a very bad beating. And on the road out of Shaokiwan, on towards Sheko, it was the same story. At Chaiwan, the damage caused by Wanda was extensive. As I stood on the harbour wall, one could see sampans and junks partially submerged, and people fishing in the water, trying to put their bits and pieces together. On the right, there was a mass of bamboo tangled together. Apparently, at one time, it was the fishermen's drying shelters and a market, and it'll be a long time before anything sold there. I'm told. By the Kaifeng Association, that the total homeless in this area amounts to about 3,800, all from the squatters' huts up on the hill. The typhoon came down and scythed the central section, leaving relatively unharmed those on the left and right, but those in the central section of the huts were completely razed to the ground. And from Chaiwan round the island to where again it was the boat people who seemed to have suffered the most. At Aberdeen, the damage has been caused largely to the boats, as might well be expected. The total number damaged is not yet known, but I'm told that about a thousand people were housed last night at the Aberdeen Police Training Centre, and a, a lot more at various welfare associations. Funnily enough, on the land itself, there was scant sign of any really extensive damage. Again, signs were swinging. Neon signs seemed to be intact. And most of the scaffolding seemed to be okay, but in the fishing area there was obviously extensive damage. I could see one or two masts pathetically waving above the water, and the fishermen were doing their best. I, I saw one person diving down and coming up with a saucepan, diving down again, coming up empty-handed. And I'm afraid that story will be repeated for a long, long time. But as I drove around the island, there was just one noise that typified the reaction of the island people to the storm. And that was the sound of a hammer banging in nails, rebuilding their homes and their boats once again. And from Aberdeen and round to Western District, where a great gap in a line of houses gave evidence of the force of winds of 160 miles an hour. It's a complete house collapse. It's not a very large house, about 20 feet wide, I would say, and some three or four stories high. And it's given way completely from the wind and the rain. 
And as I'm sitting here, there's a gang of, of, of repair laborers shoring up the next door house to try and save that one too. The house which I'm talking about, and there's a number two on the road, perhaps it is number two, Western Street, uh, is a total ruin. And it is tragic and pitiful to see the, the belongings, the goods of the people that have lived in this place. So there are some reel-to-reel -reel recordings that I found in the library to mark the 95th anniversary of RTHK. I hope you enjoyed the look back at some of those events. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage. <laughs>